Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, this prayer that Jesus gives us to pray in Matthew 6 is full of theology, it's full of truth, and it's pretty revolutionary if we can redeem it from being kind of this rote thing that people memorized when they were little kids. It is a prayer that can be said in about 30 seconds, but within it contains sort of all of the petitions and requests that have a transforming impact not only on us but on the world. So I just want to read it for us. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The first three petitions are God word, they're given to us. God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. They're there so that our minds and our lives can become oriented around the person of God. The rest of the prayer really focuses us sort of in our world and in our relationships. But these first three are there to go, what would it look like if God ordered your life? And if you ordered your life around him. And today we're looking at this aspect of the prayer, your kingdom come. And I think for many of us, when we think of our spirituality, we don't integrate it with politics. And we would assume Jesus didn't either. But the truth is, this is a political statement. And it's a timely statement for us as we sit around and we anticipate this election Coming up, and everyone, I think, throughout history, every country, every political candidate would say God is on their side. Um, In a very interesting way that that can always be possible, but everybody wants, nobody wants to claim God is against me, vote for me, right? (laughs) Nobody wants to follow that candidate. But the truth is, we tend to live in a world where what we're trying to do is get God to endorse our agenda. It's very similar to say who's going to back that candidate and we treat God like any other endorsement. We do it in our personal lives and we do it with our political kind of understanding. Yet when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, while it is a political statement, it's also theological, and there's a lot more going on than just getting a candidate in office. But he's talking about a realm and a rule of God breaking in on earth. And what would it look like if God reigned on earth? What would it look like for the kingdom to come? Well, throughout history... The people of God have always struggled with the fact that God would be their king. 
In the same way that you and I struggle with submitting our lives to obey God, to follow God. And so turn with me. I want to walk through a little bit of Israel's history so we can wrap our minds around what Jesus is actually asking us to pray. So turn with me to Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Exodus is a story of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus 19, he is preparing to enter into covenant with them, relationship with them, as we know of it as the Ten Commandments. But at Mount Sinai, God is talking to Moses, and he's saying, here's what I want you to tell the people. And in verse 4, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. And so he tells them that even though the whole earth is mine, I will select this group of people to be my kingdom, my holy nation. And they'll act as priests. In other words, they will mediate between us and the rest of the nations in a way that would display the glory, the reign, the rule of this good and loving God. The God who saves, who does away with sin, who dwells in your midst. And so, He establishes relationship with Israel and says, I will be your king and you will be my kingdom. Well, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. People, Israel, as probably well as us, struggle with God as their king. And so in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, Samuel is a prophet, and he would speak on behalf of God to the people. He was the sort of mediator between God as king and the people. And so in verse 4, the elders of Israel gather together, and they come to Samuel at Ramah, and they say, you're old, and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And when they said this, Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what a king, what the king who will reign over them, will claim as his rights. So the people of God reject God as king. And what they do, they look at the rest of the nations and they say, we want to be like them. And so we want a human king to reign and to rule over us. God participates with them and gives them a king. And sometimes that king has a heart 
that essentially is good, like David, who says, I want, to be a, I want my kingdom, this kingdom, to be a place where God dwells with his people. And so he would understand himself that I'm a king, but I'm serving the king. And others would be full of themselves and would lead Israel, lead the people to reject God. And so the people of God have struggled with God as king for a long time. And the problem is not political, but it's at the core theological. Like, who will I order my life around? Who will I submit to as an act of worship? Who will I trust in? Who will I let inform me about how I see and understand the world around me? And as good Americans, most of us would say we won't let anybody do that for us. We enthrone ourselves as king, right? Well, what happens in the cycle of Israel's story is the same thing that happens in the cycle of our story. We go from a place where we're pretty stoked to be under the reign and rule of God, and then we kind of look around and we go, wow, I wish my life was like theirs, or I wish that I could be satisfied by this thing or that God. And so what they would do is they would rebel against the rule of God and the reign of God, and they would worship other gods, and they would find themselves in judgment, where God would allow them to be taken by other kings, and they would have to serve those kings. And the word in scripture for that is exile, that they would be removed from their home, they would be removed from the reign of God, and they would become subservient to another king's reign. They call that exile, in the Old Testament. Well, God as king is not primarily just a spiritual thing. It has social implications as well. And that would kind of play out in Israel's life in the same way that it plays out in your life and my life. When our hearts are not connected, submitted, sort of in a place of worship and faithfulness to Jesus, then we tend to worship and serve other things. And that always has social implications. It affects our families. It affects our neighbors. And as that moves from these small social circles, it actually trickles out into the systems, into the agendas, into the powers that are taking place in culture. And in the context for us of Portland, you can trace it all back to us personally. When we reject the reign and rule of God, when we reject his agenda for the world, then we start to choose somebody else's. Whether it's ours or it's a political party or whatever it might be. But we always end up in exile. Exile meaning we are away from God. That might be exile where we're stuck in a place of addiction, 
It might be in a place where we're stuck in a relational estrangement with people around us. We might find ourselves in a place where we're contributing to the injustices that take place around the city. I mean, you could go on and on to describe the horrors of exile. But one thing is always true about the people of God in exile is they begin to once again hope in God. They, they begin to long once again for the reign and rule of God to break in to their life. So, if you were in first century Palestine, if you were sitting underneath the teaching of Jesus, and he said the words, your kingdom come, when he said the words kingdom of God, you would think, your mind would think a couple of different things. You would think salvation from exile. That means God comes and takes us out of exile. You would think God does away with sin and evil. My sin as well as the evil around me. And you would think that God is going to dwell in our midst. That would have, the way that they put, packaged all that together, N.T. Wright says, is the phrase, the kingdom of God. So when we pray, when Jesus says pray for the kingdom to come, you're praying that, that God, that Yahweh would save you from this place of exile, whatever that is for you, that he would return you to this place of home, that he would take care of your sin and the sin around you, and that he would dwell with you forever. He would dwell with you forever. So now we come to Jesus. And Jesus, on this side of the cross, we know is the king of this kingdom. And so what is it that Jesus does? Well, he does these things. Matthew chapter one, it says that Jesus will save the people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, he will be God with us. In chapter three and four, you hear John and Jesus announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is political language, but it comes with a theological Thrust that God is coming to town, like he's moving in, and that is a massive statement, a statement that ultimately gets Jesus crucified. In chapter 12, when Jesus is casting out demons, he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's talking about this fact that this kingdom that's breaking in is political in one sense, but it's theological in another sense. It's a God who reigns over all the nations as well as the spiritual realm and the powers and authorities and spiritual places. When Jesus Christ breaks in with his kingdom, it is a paradoxical upside down kingdom. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds and our hearts around it because it's so different than what we understand. He defeats the powers of the world by essentially being defeated by them on the cross. That the the worldly powers, the political powers, the religious powers of the day 
crucify him outside of the city. And it's in that place of weakness that he gains victory. It's in that place of execution that he atones for our sin. It's in that place of being the victim, the lamb that was slain on the cross, that he essentially becomes victor and invites you and I into the freedom of being children of God. That this kingdom breaks in so upside down that those who were closest to him scattered. They thought, we've lost. We're throwing in the towel. There's no way. Like, we have been defeated. And then on Easter morning, the stone is rolled away. The resurrection of Jesus Christ breaks through. And pronouncement over sin and death as being judged and done away with forever takes place by the resurrected king. Forty days later, he ascends to heaven. He sends his spirit so that the spirit would dwell with the people. And that kingdom breaks in, saving us from the exile, the separation from God doing away with sin and evil as the king becomes sin on the cross. Bringing us to this place of home in God where the Father and the Son and the Spirit make their home in us and then sending the Spirit who will dwell with us forever. That is the kingdom of God Breaking in through Jesus the King. And yet, it's not fully here. One of the things that's difficult to wrap your minds around in terms of the kingdom of God is that it's here. It's already come in Jesus. All that I've talked about is present for us today. But it's not fully here. We still see other regimes whether it's my own personal sinful regime against God or it's an actual political regime against the things of God. We still see death. We still see pain. We still see crying and mourning. We still see the oppressed being taken advantage of. That stuff still happens. And so we wait for the kingdom to come in its fullness. We wait for that day when Jesus wipes away every tear and says there's no more crying or mourning or pain. Behold, I'm making everything new, which means glorified bodies that can't die, which means a heaven and an earth that is uncorrupted and incorruptible, which means evil and injustice being done away with forever so that there is an actual righteousness and an actual shalom that reigns through the rule of God everywhere and fills us with joy. And that's what we hope, anticipate, and expect. So it's already here in Jesus and it's not fully here. The great theologian Bob Dylan used the phrase, slow train coming. Like it's here, but it's not fully here yet. 
And so how do we live in this in-between time? How do we dwell in the already and the not yet? Well, turn with me to Matthew 13. A few chapters after Jesus teaches us to pray, kingdom come, he begins to define the kingdom and what it's like. And in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, you get all kinds of parabolic, parable kind of stories where he says the kingdom can't be reduced and so we can't give you like a Webster's definition, but it keeps sort of unraveling and more and more beauty and fullness with different aspects of it. And so here in verse 31, he gives us a picture of this in-breaking, already not yet kingdom. He says, he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus uses an illustration for the kingdom. And in both situations, he says it looks small and it looks insignificant. Okay, so let's try to wrap our minds around the moment, right? We're, we're one of the 12, just 12 of you. And you're hearing this kingdom language and you know that it has political weight to it. It's not a weak kind of message. It's not, only, it's not a spiritualized message. And you also understand that Rome doesn't really like people talking about new kingdoms. As soon as they pop up, they get devastated, right? So there's a sense of treason almost to this kind of talk. And you're one of the 12, and you're like, okay, so what he's telling us is that, that the 12 of us, this mustard seed, we're going to grow into this kingdom, this huge tree that, that sort of takes over, that all creation is sort of being blessed by, and the trees are perched and And you look around at each other and you think of Rome with a massive military, with a a complete sovereignty in in the nations. You think of them with the emperor and all the financial backing. Does that sound like it's going to go well, right? It would be like 12 of us going, hey, let's take over... Just pick a superpower. We'll take them out. Right? How is this going to happen? It looks foolish. And yet, here we are 2,000 years later with the, the results of that mustard seed. A, a king that went into the ground and died only to resurrect, to reproduce himself. Twelve who followed in faithfulness to that king whose lives we continue to tell the stories of. A kingdom of Christ that we gather this morning to worship, to to learn about, and to get our hearts before when 
for all intent and purposes, that story should have faded from the history books long ago. But this kingdom that shows up in the insignificance of 12 disciples is a kingdom that you're participating in, a kingdom that's broken into your life today, and a kingdom that still is breaking in even as we speak. And so it's here. It's not fully here, but it's here. And it breaks in through the smallness and the insignificance of of God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, go into this place of darkness and be my light. Go into this place of injustice and represent my equity and dignity. Go into this place of oppression and announce that I have come to set the captives free. Go into this place of addiction and invite people to freedom. That mustard seed that you are prone to sort of wipe off as small and insignificant is, is, the, it is the kingdom of God, right? It is part of that slow train coming. It is part of that in-breaking reign of God that you're invited to participate in. There's nothing insignificant about the kingdom of God. The other parable that he uses is the parable of the yeast. And it's, uh, it's 60 pounds of flour. I don't know if you've made a loaf of bread like that. It is really large. Um, I, don't, I don't know that you want to be around when the yeast actually works its way through. Uh, but, but Jesus is, knows that he's using this massive illustration to represent the world. And he's saying it's, there's an invisibleness to this kingdom where you're not going to see me on, uh, in a political debate between Jesus and Satan talking about which kingdom's better, right? You're not going to see that. It's going to be invisible, and yet it's working its way through the whole thing. Eventually, it completes its process. You perhaps didn't even notice. You just know when it shows up and when it's come to full fruition. And some of you look back in your own life. You see where Jesus has broken in. And transformation has occurred. And you aren't really sure when and how it happened. You have a city where the kingdom of God is breaking in, and you look at so many places of injustice, so many places of victimization, places where sin and evil is wreaking havoc, and you think, it can't be. Like, God has abandoned us. God has left the building. And he says, it's here, and it's breaking in, and it's coming. And you're invited to participate in it. To be the crazy ones who announce in this already and not yet kind of tension that there is a king who is righteous and who is peaceful and who brings great joy. There is a reign and rule of God that's coming and there would be these people, these mustard seeds who can imagine another world is possible, and we would pray that that world would come. 
So in this already and not yet reality, it is us who are invited to hope in the kingdom, to trust in the kingdom, to participate in the kingdom, and to live under the reign and rule of the king. And so prayer, back to Matthew 6, prayer, right? What a powerless, what a dumb sort of thing to do. When you're talking about, you're, you're talking about a world that's in, 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 in upside down and broken and messed up. You're talking about my life that's upside down, broken, and messed up. You're talking about sin in me and evil, actual evil that reigns. And we're going to pray, right? Shouldn't we do something else? Shouldn't we get our guy into office? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we rally the troops and go to war? Shouldn't, like, what should we do? And Jesus says, fold your hands and get on your knees. And you ask the kingdom to come. You pray for the kingdom to come. Prayer is a revolt against the powers of the world. Powers of darkness, spiritual powers, actual powers. This prayer is a revolt. It's a place of opposition to the systems of oppression to the powers of darkness and of evil. And this prayer is also grounded in the fact that this is not our kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And God is the one who brings that kingdom to bear. Prayer is so essential because you and I will pervert this kingdom language in a heartbeat. It will move from being these people of prayer saying, God, your kingdom come, to people who are endorsing our agendas with God's stamp. Prayer prevents us from perverting this language of the kingdom of God. Prayer is this subversive act that protests against a world that has been determined by sin. Prayer is participation with this God that invades the world with his kingdom. Prayer for the kingdom to come is inviting Jesus to set the world straight again. It's political, but not democratic because it's about theocracy. It's about the reign and the rule of God that sees past all of our current debates and situations and imagines a world where Jesus is king. And prayer works to see that kingdom come. So this radical Messiah bands these people together in revolt and says, pray. You're like, how do we get on that bandwagon, right? Be the subversive people who actually believe that this is God's kingdom. And so when he calls you to prayer, it's like saying, 
let's go meet with the president and tell him what we see. Let's go meet with the emperor and, and, and ask him to come and, and help us, right? If we really believe it is God's kingdom, then prayer is immediate access to the king. And why in the world would we not start there? And so God's rule and reign is an invitation to pray this way because the kingdom is not fully present. God has to bring it. And his reign is something that we get to participate in, but it's not something that we control. And so today, as we come to this table, we come to a table of our crucified and risen king. And we come to a table that is a table of invitation. For you, no matter where you're at, to pray that Jesus' kingdom would come. For those of you who are in spiritual exile, who found yourself separated from God, who have chased after your own sin, who has uh, participated in uh, evil, and you're finding yourself under the reign of a king that you don't want to be under, then we come confessing and praying your kingdom come. When we think of the world that God invites us to participate in, when we think of injustice and darkness, we pray, God, your kingdom come. When we think of our own passions and desires and longings, the places where we hurt, doubt, We pray, God, your kingdom come. We stand with Jesus in this revolution that another world is breaking in. And it's his world. And he reigns and he rules. And so we want to align our hearts and our lives to that. And we pray your kingdom come. So let's pray. Jesus, this morning for those who are in spiritual exile, we pray your kingdom come. This morning for those who find themselves in addiction, we pray your kingdom come. Those who find themselves today in a place of loneliness and fear, we pray your kingdom come. For those this morning, God, who find themselves in a place of doubt, we pray your kingdom come. Jesus, we ask that you would uh, empower us to order our lives under your reign and your rule. And in that, we pray that your kingdom would come. And as we think about our city, in the places of darkness and despair and oppression where evil has broken in, 
and people are being hurt, we pray your kingdom come. In our own eyes that look out and have participated in those things, God, we pray that you would forgive us and that your kingdom would come and that you would give us eyes to see and imagine what a world looks like where your righteousness and peace reign through your spirit. So we pray in our own imaginations as we dream your dream for this city, we pray that your kingdom would come. And now at this table, with the sacred symbol of wine and bread, we thank you that your presence is here with us by your spirit, and we invite you to your kingdom to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.